This episode of the MedBullet Step 1 podcast will go over the topic of cirrhosis and portal hypertension from the gastrointestinal section on MedBullets.com. Let's start this episode with a clinical snapshot. A 50-year-old man presents to his primary care physician with yellowing skin and increased abdominal girth. He believes that he has gained weight and is worried about obesity. He also reports being concerned about increased breast size. He denies having a history of alcohol abuse, but when he is questioned further, he admits to drinking a bottle of vodka daily to cope with stressors in his life. On exam, he has spider angiomas on his abdomen, jaundice, and gynecomastia. Now, let's get into the episode. As a quick overview, cirrhosis is a liver disease characterized by hepatic fibrosis, regenerative nodules, and dysfunction. Portal hypertension is a complication of cirrhosis resulting in increased pressure in the portal venous system. With respect to the epidemiology, as far as incidence, cirrhosis and portal hypertension is a very common cause of death. Risk factors include alcoholic liver disease, which is the most common, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, chronic viral hepatitis, autoimmune hepatitis, hepatocellular carcinoma, primary biliary cirrhosis, alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, Wilson's disease, and hemochromatosis. In terms of the pathogenesis of cirrhosis and portal hypertension, let's talk about the mechanisms of chronic liver damage and portal hypertension. The mechanism of cirrhosis is chronic liver damage, which results in regenerative nodules surrounded by bridging fibrosis. Abnormal wound healing with continued connective tissue deposition results in fibrosis, and the fibrosis is mediated by stellate cells. Micronodular chronic liver damage is characterized by nodules less than 3 mm following a metabolic insult. Macronodular chronic liver damage is characterized by nodules greater than 3 mm following hepatic necrosis, and macronodular liver damage has an increased risk of hepatocellular carcinoma. Chronic liver damage results in damage to the hepatic vasculature where fibrosis causes portal hypertension and shunting of the portal and arterial blood. Chronic liver damage results in impaired liver biosynthetic function. For example, decreased synthesis of albumin and other proteins leads to decreased plasma oncotic pressure. Moving on to portal hypertension, this is secondary to increased portal hydrostatic pressure. This causes dilation of venous plexuses at the site of portal systemic anastomoses, for example, the esophageal varices. The regulatory response by the body, for example, nitric oxide release, leads to splanchnic and systemic vasodilation, resulting in hypotension. This stimulates ADH release by the posterior pituitary. Low renal perfusion pressures cause activation of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system. Finally, in terms of prognosis for cirrhosis and portal hypertension, the model for end-stage liver disease, or the MELD score, predicts a three-month mortality in patients with cirrhosis. The score involves the creatinine, bilirubin, and INR. Moving on to the presentation of cirrhosis and portal hypertension, patients may have common symptoms such as fatigue, weakness, weight loss, loss of appetite, pruritus, and or upper gastrointestinal bleeding. On physical exam, inspection may reveal mental status changes and signs of liver disease, which you can remember with the mnemonic BADJPEGS, B-A-D-J-P-E-G-S, where the B stands for bleeding, which manifests with an increased prothrombin time, the A stands for asterixis, which manifests with a flapping tremor. The D stands for Dupuytren's contracture. The J stands for jaundice, which manifests with decreased excretion of bilirubin. The P stands for palmar erythema. The E stands for encephalopathy, which is secondary to decreased excretion of ammonia. The G stands for gynecomastia, which is secondary to decreased degradation of estrogen. 
and the S stands for spider angiomata, which is also secondary to the decreased degradation of estrogen. Portal hypertension may manifest with hepatosplenomegaly, caput medusa, and ascites. Moving on to imaging, indications for computed tomography or CT of the abdomen is when other imaging studies are inconclusive. Patients often undergo CT of the abdomen during workup to exclude other pathologies. Findings on CT can include nodularity, hypertrophy, and oricides. Liver ultrasound is indicated in all patients. Findings include fibrosis, nodularity, increased echogenicity, and atrophy or hypertrophy of liver lobes. Transient elastography is indicated to measure liver stiffness, and this is indicated in all patients. Findings include hepatic fibrosis and increased stiffness. Other studies to obtain in the setting of cirrhosis and portal hypertension include serum labs and certain invasive studies. So in terms of serum labs, multiple severity scores exist for cirrhosis, but often include increased liver enzymes, increased prothrombin time, and keep in mind that you will treat these patients with fresh frozen plasma or factor replacement. You will also see increased direct bilirubin, decreased platelets, and increased creatinine. To determine the etiology of cirrhosis and portal hypertension, you should obtain hepatitis B and C serology, alpha-1 antitrypsin levels, anti-nuclear antibody, anti-smooth muscle titers, anti-mitochondrial antibody, ferritin, transferrin saturation levels, 24-hour copper level in the urine, ceruloplasmin, and hemochromatosis genetic testing. Invasive studies include a liver biopsy, which is indicated in patients who cannot undergo transient elastography. Another indication for liver biopsy is the clinical presentation is not consistent with the diagnosis. The differential diagnosis for cirrhosis and portal hypertension is acute viral hepatitis. However, the key distinguishing factor between acute viral hepatitis and cirrhosis as well as portal hypertension is that acute viral hepatitis has acute onset of symptoms with viral prodrome, nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain. Acute viral hepatitis will also lack findings of chronic liver disease. Treatment of cirrhosis and portal hypertension can be lifestyle modifications, medical treatment, or surgical management. The management approach overall is to treat the underlying cause if possible. Lifestyle modifications include a diet with restricted sodium, and this is indicated in all patients with ascites. Other lifestyle modifications include alcohol and smoking cessation. Medical management includes antibiotic prophylaxis for spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, this is indicated in the setting of cirrhosis and gastrointestinal bleeding, or ascites. Vaccinations are indicated in all patients, and modalities include hepatitis A vaccine, hepatitis B vaccine, and a 23-valent pneumococcal vaccine. Surgical intervention includes liver transplantation and portal shunting. Indications for a liver transplantation is refractory liver cirrhosis and major complications such as ascites, variceal bleeding, and hepatic encephalopathy. Portal shunting is indicated in the setting of portal hypertension. Some complications to mention include hepatocellular carcinoma, and screening should involve a liver ultrasound and alpha-fetoprotein every six months, esophageal or gastric varices, and screening should be done with esophago-gastroduodenoscopy or an EGD, and finally, spontaneous bacterial peritonitis is another potential complication in the setting of cirrhosis and portal hypertension. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, A 71-year-old man is brought to the emergency department by his daughter after she found him to be extremely confused at home. She says that he appeared to be fine in the morning, however, upon returning home, she found that he was slumped in his chair and was hard to arouse. 
She was worried that he may have taken too many medications and rushed him to the emergency department. His past medical history is significant for bipolar disorder and absence seizures. He does not smoke and drinks four alcoholic beverages per night on average. On physical exam, he is found to have a flapping tremor of his hands, pitting ankle edema, and gynecomastia. He does not appear to have any focal neurologic deficits. Which of the following lab findings would most likely be seen in this patient? And the choices are 1. Increased anticonvulsant levels. 2. Increased antidepressant levels. 3. Increased bleeding time. 4. Increased D-dimer levels. And 5. Increased prothrombin time. The correct answer to this question is 5. Increased prothrombin time. This patient with asterixis, pitting ankle edema, and gynecomastia, who had a change in mental status, most likely has hepatic encephalopathy secondary to cirrhosis. Patients with cirrhosis will have elevated prothrombin time. Cirrhosis is a state of irreversible liver damage resulting in fibrosis and hepatic failure. Loss of normal liver functions can result in bleeding due to decreased synthesis of coagulation factors, encephalopathy due to decreased excretion of ammonia, jaundice due to decreased excretion of bilirubin, and gynecomastia due to decreased degradation of estrogens. Furthermore, the resulting portal hypertension in cirrhosis can lead to ascites and formation of a caput medusae near the umbilicus. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, increased anticonvulsant levels is incorrect because the physical exam findings, such as asterixis, are more consistent with the diagnosis of hepatic encephalopathy. Answer 2, increased antidepressant levels is incorrect because overdose of neurotransmitter modulators, such as tricyclic antidepressants, will usually present with tachycardia, nausea, vomiting, agitation, and headache in addition to drowsiness and confusion. Answer 3, increased bleeding time is incorrect because bleeding time is a measure of primary hemostasis. The coagulation factors produced by the liver are more important for secondary hemostasis. Answer 4, increased D-dimer levels is incorrect because a clotting event would usually either present with respiratory failure if the cause was a pulmonary embolism or focal neurologic deficits if the cause was a stroke. To leave you with a bullet summary, cirrhosis can present with an elevated prothrombin time due to decreased production of coagulation factors. Moving on to the next question. A 53-year-old man presents to his primary care physician due to fatigue and increased abdominal girth. He has noticed a gradual decrease in energy for 7 months and worries the reason is due to weight gain. He denies dyspnea, chest pain, constipation, or diarrhea. He has a history of alcohol abuse disorder and continues to drink 1 pint of vodka daily. His temperature is 97.5 degrees Fahrenheit or 36.4 degrees Celsius. Blood pressure is 138 over 82 millimeters of mercury. Pulse is 74 per minute. And respirations are 17 per minute. On exam, he has telangiectasias on his bilateral cheeks and chest and scleral icterus. His abdomen is distended but soft and non-tender. The liver edge is palpable 8 centimeters below the costal margin. Laboratory values are as follows. Serum sodium is 136 milliequivalents per liter. Chloride is 102 milliequivalents per liter. Potassium is 4.3 milliequivalents per liter. Bicarbonate is 24 milliequivalents per liter. Urea nitrogen is 11 milligrams per deciliter. Glucose is 97 milligrams per deciliter. Creatinine is 0.98 milligrams per deciliter. Alkaline phosphatase is 47 units per liter. Aspartate aminotransferase, or AST, GOT, is 97 units per liter. Alanine aminotransferase, or ALT, GPT, is 59 units per liter. Gamma glutamyl transferase, or GGT, is 69 units per liter. 
and total bilirubin is 1.9 mg per deciliter. A liver biopsy with trichrome stain demonstrates cirrhosis. Fibrotic bands are stained blue, and they are surrounded by regenerative nodules, which are stained red, of liver parenchyma. Which of the following cells mediates this process? And the choices are 1. Hepatocytes, 2. Langerhans cells, 3. Panath cells, 4. Stellate cells, and 5. Sinusoidal endothelial cells. The correct answer to this question is four stellate cells. So this patient is presenting with alcoholic cirrhosis in the setting of fatigue, chronic alcohol use, scleral icterus, telangiectasias, hepatomegaly, and elevated GGT, bilirubin, and AST slash ALT ratio. The hallmark biopsy finding of cirrhosis is fibrosis, which is mediated by stellate cells. Cirrhosis is caused by chronic damage to the liver, most commonly due to hepatitis C infection or chronic excessive alcohol consumption. Chronic hepatic inflammation leads to cytokine-mediated activation of stellate cells, which are pericytes found in the perisinusoidal space, which mediate the subsequent repair mechanism, resulting in fibrosis. Excess fibrotic tissue impairs hepatic blood flow and function, which leads to various signs and symptoms such as jaundice, hepatosplenomegaly, ascites, telangiectasias or spider angiomata, palmar erythema, and gynecomastia. Laboratory tests reveal hepatocellular damage, as there is elevated AST, ALT, GGT, and bilirubin. Liver biopsy can confirm the diagnosis. Management includes treatment of the underlying cause, for example, decreased alcohol consumption or antiviral drugs, and medications for treating complications. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, hepatocytes make up the main parenchymal tissue of the liver. Their functions include protein synthesis, protein storage, synthesis of cholesterol, and detoxification of exogenous and endogenous substances. Answer 2. Langerhans cells are macrophages of the skin that are found in the stratum spinosum. They are antigen-presenting cells that contain Burbeck granules. Langerhans cells histiocytosis is a rare cancer that causes lytic bone lesions most commonly in the skull and is associated with rash. Answer 3. Panath cells are a principal type of the small intestine epithelium found in the crypts of Librecon. Panath cells contain acidophilic granules and secrete lysozymes and defensins that aid in innate immunity. And finally, answer 5. Sinusoidal endothelial cells form the lining of the hepatic sinusoids, which are the smallest blood vessels of the liver. Sinusoidal endothelial cells play a central role in the clearance of bloodborne waste, for example, alcohol. However, they do not mediate fibrosis in response to the inflammation induced by excessive bloodborne waste. To leave you with a bullet summary, cirrhosis is a condition caused by chronic damage to the liver resulting in fibrosis, which is mediated by stellate cells. And moving on to the final question. A 32-year-old male with a history of ongoing alcohol abuse is admitted to the hospital for recurrent shortness of breath and dyspnea. The patient has required weekly paracentesis for recurrent accumulation of ascites. On initial exam, the patient is noted to have yellowing of his sclera and a markedly distended abdomen with shifting dullness to percussion. An esophageal gastroduodenoscopy performed one month prior demonstrated esophageal and gastric varices. A chest radiograph demonstrates hepatic hydrothorax. And the patient's abdomen demonstrates caput medusa. Which of the following appropriate interventions in this patient would most likely reduce the patient's recurring symptoms in the short term? And the choices are 1. Increased dosage of furosemide and spironolactone. 2. Transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunt procedure. 3. Perform paracentesis as needed. 4. Pursue liver transplantation. And 5. Initiate natalol therapy. 
the correct answer to this question is to transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunt procedure. So this patient has alcoholic cirrhosis complicated by portal hypertension with resulting ascites and gastric as well as esophageal varices. Chest radiograph demonstrates a hepatic hydrothorax causing recurrent shortness of breath and dyspnea. Performing a transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunt or a TIPS procedure is the most appropriate intervention to decrease this patient's recurrent symptoms in the short term. Scarring of the liver parenchyma and cirrhosis causes increased vascular resistance, which leads to increased pressures in the portal venous system known as portal hypertension. A TIPS procedure involves the placement of a catheter connecting the hepatic vein to the portal vein, thereby allowing portal venous blood to bypass the flow-resistant liver circulation. Heidelbaugh and Sherbindi reviewed the management strategies for patients with cirrhosis. The medical management of ascites involves sodium and fluid restriction combined with diuresis using furosemide and spironolactone. A beta blocker such as propanolol or natalol is administered to prevent variceal bleeding in patients with portal hypertension. A TIPS procedure should be considered for patients with refractory ascites who are not appropriate liver transplant candidates. Porcel reviews the management of refractory hepatic hydrothorax. In 25% of cases, medical management with salt restriction and diuretics is ineffective. Serial thoracentesis is a management option, but frequent invasive procedures carry an elevated risk of complications. The most beneficial therapy, therefore, in cases of recurrent hepatic hydrothorax is a TIPS procedure, especially in patients awaiting potential liver transplantation. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, this patient has recurrent ascites and a hepatic hydrothorax refractory to medical management with diuretics. Answer 3, performing serial paracentesis is not the best management option for this patient's recurrent symptoms. Answer 4, this patient is not a candidate for liver transplantation given his active alcohol use. And finally, answer 5, natalol would be beneficial in the prevention of variceal bleeding, but not effective in the management of the patient's recurrent ascites. That's all for this review about cirrhosis and portal hypertension. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the MedBullets Step 1 podcast, a daily audio review session by MedBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for medical student education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on MedBullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the MedBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the MedBullets Step 1 podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much, and we'll see you all tomorrow.